What's up, guys? Corey here with the E4 Explicit Podcast, and today we have Frogman, right? That's your yep. that's your the, the email. Navy right? Seal. It's called the Frogman. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. it's water and all that stuff, yep. you know. So yeah. this is Don Man. He's a uh, um, was a member of SEAL Team Six, yep. Navy SEAL for seventeen out of twenty years. Twenty-one. Twenty-one yeah. in the in the military, which is fucking insane. So just give me like a minute to two minute synopsis or breakdown of like who you are because you're more than just an, a former navy seal military guy you have you know your new york times best-selling author you have written 20 books you know what i mean so you've done a lot of things so just kind of brush over all those things if you want to i think to start with Corey, i'm a patriot i love the united states my father instilled patriotism in me at a young age and i love sports and i love pushing myself and i love excitement yeah so SEAL Team, when I heard about SEAL Team, that's all I wanted. I gave my whole life to be a SEAL. I wanted to be a SEAL more than anything in my life. It's the most important thing to me. I became a SEAL, and my life had real meaning once I found SEAL Team. Before SEAL Team, I was pretty much a derelict, just off racing motorcycles and getting in trouble. I had a lot of energy, and I wanted to do something exciting and adventurous. When I found SEAL Team, and it was patriotic, it was for the country, and you're working out, and you're doing push-ups and pull-ups and sit-ups, running down the beach and skydiving and blowing things up and going all over the world, defending our country, there was nothing else I wanted. So I was very fortunate to find SEAL Team. And um, so I, was, I served at SEAL Team 1, 2, and 6, and I retired in 98, and have been since helping our recruitment of young guys who want to become SEALs. I've been doing that for 20 years and also about 20-plus years working for the government as a contractor, spending time in the war zones, going to different places, using a lot of the skills I learned as a SEAL overseas as a contractor. And on the side, I've been an adventure athlete all my life, doing Ironmans, double Ironmans, climbing mountains, and I've competed in over a 1,000 races, and I love the sport of racing. I love pushing myself. I love pushing myself to the point of full exhaustion, uh, vomiting, uh, <laughs> seeing stars, hallucinating, and passing out because I love giving everything I have to whatever I'm doing. And and that's what I loved about that sport of adventure racing. And doing, I did two Ironmans in one day when I was 50 years old. Jesus Christ. Yep. And, um, and I did one of the first Ironmans in Hawaii and way before I was a SEAL. And I loved it because it was the biggest race in the world. It was a 2.4-mile swim, a 112-mile bike race, and then a, a marathon, 26.2 marathon, 26.2-mile marathon. And I did that, and I was hoping to break the champion's record of 11 hours and 44 minutes. My macro goal, I set my whole life in goals, macro goals and micro goals. I picked some far-reaching goal. That was my macro goal, finishing the Hawaii Ironman, the biggest race in the world. And then I put on the side, I want to break the champion's time of 11 hours and 44 minutes. I actually passed him on the bike ride. I couldn't believe I passed Gordon Haller on the bike ride. I looked at him. I said, have a great race, champ. I couldn't believe I passed him. (laughs) And I finished 38th that year. But that's the year I was ranked 38th in the world as a triathlete. And then I started thinking, you know, if I could do one Ironman in less than 12 hours— I should be able to do two in one day. So I made my next macro goal, two Ironmans in one day, which is 4.8 miles of swimming, 224-mile bike ride, 
and a 52.4 mile run. Holy shit. So the paddling, the swimming, I'm sorry, the swimming, the water event went well, the bike event went well. First marathon went okay. The second marathon, I was at mile 32. I started seeing the, I started seeing the white stars. <laughs> I started dry heaving, spitting up some green bile. And then I started choking up what felt like was a rib bone coming out of my lungs, coming out of my neck sideways, and it was just choking and choking and choking. Then I passed out. As a mile 32. And then when I woke up on the lawn, I saw the other cyclists going by and the runners. I was thinking, why am I sleeping outside? <laughs> then I was thinking, I'm in a double Ironman. I better get up and finish. And I got up and finished. And I was so happy that that happened to me. I got the medal. I'm a double Ironman finisher. I'm all excited and everything. But I'm so happy that happened because all the times in my life when I thought things were too hard or I was pushing myself too much or I was a little uncomfortable, I was wrong. Because I found out that day, physically, if you are pushing yourself too hard or if you think you're too uncomfortable, if that's the case, your body will do you a favor and you'll pass out and you'll get the sleep you need. And that's what happened. I got my little nap after I passed out, got up, woke up, finished the double Ironman. And um, so it was a good lesson for me. But I just love pushing myself and I love pushing people. Because what I think, when I got out of SEAL Team, I realized... Most people I've come across since then, they set their goals low. And they achieve their low-setting goals. They go home and they're happy. Yeah. What I, what I believe is that there's a whole big part of a person's life that goes unfulfilled. And they never reach their full potential. Why not set your goals really, really high, make it a macro goal? You know, when I said I was going to be a, do an Ironman, people said, are you crazy? That's yeah. the toughest race in the world. You're going to be a SEAL. Are you crazy? But I set this high, high-reaching goal, a lot of micro-goals to reach up to it. Knock out the macro-goal, bring that down to micro-goal level, and make something bigger. And and by having that philosophy, um, I've been able to live the life I've wanted to live. I've competed in over a 1,000 of those events. I've served SEAL Team 1, 2, and 6, retired SEAL Team 6, and served my country now for 42 years, and I'm still climbing mountains and racing, and I'm 62 years old, and I'm not going to stop. So I, I love that philosophy. And not only as a SEAL and an adventure athlete, but if you're a banker or a doctor, no matter what you are, that philosophy works. That philosophy works for young guys trying to be SEALs and go through BUDS. We try to instill this into them, but it works for anybody. So what my passion is now is trying to spread a message that I believe can help anybody. Damn, dude. Well, you're fucking – that's – you're good at it, man. That's like, that's some intense shit. Two Ironmans in one day. And you said this is before you were a Navy SEAL. Um, I did the Ironmans before I was a SEAL. I did the two Ironmans one day after I was a SEAL. Got it. So, like, not knowing that in the SEALs, because like, I've always heard it's like, they break you down, they break you down, they break you down. But really, the only people that get through, like, buds and stuff is the people that, like, mentally can keep going like when they do pass out or whatever you know what i mean so like not knowing that that's like a big part of it you kind of did that almost like it was like almost meant to be almost right because you passing out like that's i like that i passed out and i passed out a lot of times pushing myself too much that's insane. and i liked it a lot because i knew i wasn't leaving anything on the table i, I was given everything i had and you've always finished everything after after you've not always nope oh, I've really? ended up in the hospital I've almost killed myself twice and um, doing I've what? pushed too hard too often and now um, 
I've learned a few lessons. <laughs> and <laughs> I'd, I'd say so. Yeah. You know, I weigh 185 right now, and I'm pretty fit. Yeah. And I've gone down to 138 because I pushed myself so hard for so long. I used all my fat and cholesterol and, and, and glycogen and, and glucose stores and everything I had. And then you, your mind gets so powerful, you keep training and you keep pushing yourself, working out 50 to 60 hours a week. Then your muscle starts breaking down, and you can smell it. And you use that as energy. And I've done that, so I've gone down to below 140 pounds. Jesus but Christ. my liver and kidneys were shutting down on me, and that's one of the times I almost died. So I'd like to clarify one thing, though. Yeah. I pushed a lot of people in my life to the point of passing out hallucinations, bonking or bleeding from any orifice, was mm -hmm. my saying. Bleed from any orifice. You push yourself hard enough, you'll bleed or pass out. <laughs> I don't ever would ever would say that to anybody else. I learned that there's a better way. I knew for sure if I pushed myself to those limits, I was giving it my all. But now I've I finally learned a smarter way after doing that for decades. Yeah. To identify a line, that's the hard part. Identify a line. If you're a baseball player, or a banker, or a doctor, or a cook, or whatever you are, identify a line where if you give too much to that profession or that sport or that hobby, if you do too much, your marriage might start breaking down. You might have relationship issues. If it's an athletic endeavor, you might start having joint issues or sprains or strains, or in my case, my liver and kidneys shutting down. Yeah. Don't go over the line. Just go up and touch the line, back off, and um, recover. Go up and touch the line and back off, but don't go over the line. And that's what I believe is the secret now. As a father, if you give everything in your life to being a father— your job's going to suffer. You're not going to stay healthy because That's you're not going to be working out. Yep. You can't give everything. You go over that line, you're giving too much. Identify what going over is is the line, where the line is, and then back off. That's what I think the secret is now. Wow. That's such a good But it took advice. me many, many, many years to figure that out yeah. and a lot of damage to myself. Yeah. So I like to try to get that message across. No, that's fantastic. And you went, was it a month or a year ago when you just tried to climb my Everest? I was on Everest in 2016. That's, <laughs> but it was fuck. a macro goal of mine. I climbed over 30 mountains, getting ready for Everest. I was so excited about it. You know, you have to sacrifice quite a bit. Yeah, it was over ninety thousand dollars and over 75 days commitment. What? Yeah. Why so expensive? Uh, you have to get permits, the gear, the travel, the hotels. Um, There's a lot to it. You know, wow. you're you're basically making a big, big commitment. It's a huge investment in commitment, yeah. Yep. God damn. And there's a lot of things that happen on Everest. Like 2015 was the deadliest year ever, and 2014 was the second deadliest year. And because of the mountains, they're warming up, and the snow's coming down, the ice is coming down, the avalanches are killing a lot of people. So you hear avalanches all the time we're there. Really? And they come through base camp, and they killed a bunch of people the year before I was there. And some of the people on my trip happened not to be in the tents in base camp when the avalanches killed the other people in the tents. Oh, my God. So it's intense. You know, you have, you have the avalanches, which you, you hear the whole two months you're there. And you see them, and you feel them. You see Sherpas trying to run, up, run, them, you know, run away so you don't, they don't get covered. You have crevasses where you can step on a snow bridge, and the bridge can open up, and you can see one or two miles deep down in the earth. If you step in that, you disappear. Uh, yeah. And um, hypothermia, frostbite, altitude mountain sickness, all things you deal with up there. But also what's very deadly is 
hape and haze. Hape is high altitude pulmonary edema, where your lungs fill with fluids, and high altitude cerebral edema, where your brain fills with fluids. And uh, you'd never know who it's going to happen to. Sir Edmund Hillary, the first to climb Everest, got hape. A lot of people get hape, and they don't know why. It's not your fitness level. It's not your age. They don't know why people get hape or haste. And one of the most, if not the most dangerous part of Everest is a Kumbu icefall. And you may have seen that in the movies and read it in books, but it's where they have those 16-foot aluminum ladders crossing these walls of ice. And uh, the walls of ice shift sometimes a meter at a a time, a, a day. They'll shift a meter. And the ladders collapse. And you walk across these ladders with aluminum crampons, and the (laughs) ladders are aluminum, and they shake and they rattle. And sometimes they'll tie two ladders together, sometimes up to six ladders together. So these things are really wobbling. And you look down, you see in the center of the earth, it looks like. And uh, some of the ladders are vertical, and you climb these ladders. And you have crampons on, you're out of breath, and you're trying to breathe, and you have all this heavy clothing on. And I was climbing a vertical ladder, and I put my head down, and fluid just came out of my nose and my mouth. And I was developing HAPE, high-altitude pulmonary edema, without even knowing it. Oh, my God. And fluid just was pouring out of my nose and mouth. And uh, my head was pounding, and then it got really dark out. I thought it wasn't really dark. My color vision went away, so I couldn't. It was dark out. And then I couldn't remember where I was. What the then fuck? I didn't know why I was on a ladder. And cerebral edema was pushing in on my brain. So you were getting both. I got them both at one time on the worst part of Everest. And you have these crampons on with two points in the front of the crampons. And you have an ice axe. And my ladder didn't go all the way to the ice wall. So then you're kicking in the crampon in the ice, putting your ice axe in, trying to pull yourself up, kicking your crampons. And the whole time I couldn't breathe. Fluid come out of my nose and mouth, and um, I didn't know where I was. Holy shit. And then I finally got to the top, and I passed out. And uh, one of the guides came over, and we had we had uh, Andre Dorje Sherpa, the most famous Sherpa in the world with us. Mm-hmm. He saved so many lives on Everest. He summited more than anybody in the world but one other person. Wow. And he's the hero of... Um, all the Everest books right now, you know, or the movies, you know. Yeah. Into Thin Air, the the, the most famous mm-hmm. climbing book. He's a hero of that. So he came up to me and said, Don, what's the matter? I said, I can't, I can't breathe. I couldn't talk even. He said, we got to get you down now. He knew I was dying, and I was dying fast. And um, so I put my hand on a oh, – this guy, his name is Mike Roberts. He summited eight times, really good guy from New Zealand. I had his oxygen mask on, and I was trying to walk down the mountain, and I kept passing out. What? And we got to this uh, ice cliff, about 120, 130 feet or so. He said, can you repel? I said, yeah, I can repel. I've repelled all my life. Of course I can repel. So he repelled down, and I got the rope, and I was thinking, shoot, I forget how to repel because my mind was going. Oh, my God. And But I remember that morning I saw a Sherpa, and he wrapped a rope around his arm about eight times, and he went down the wall just releasing a loop at a time. Uh-huh. And I remembered him doing that, so I said to myself, I'll just do that. So I wrapped the rope around my arm a bunch of times. And I was just hoping I wasn't going to pass out along the way or I'd die. Yeah, you literally die, yeah. So I was l- releasing one loop at a time, and I made it to the bottom, made it back down to base camp, and uh, which is still at 18,000 feet. Oh, my 
And um, our doctor was medevaced for HAEP, the same thing I had. Our other Sherpa was medevaced. We were really having a tough time as a team. And a doctor came, they found a doctor, and she had ripped her leg open with an avalanche. A rock came and ripped her leg open. She sewed it up herself and saved all these other lives. So she's a well-known doctor. And she came and treated me in a really nice way. She said, Don, if we don't get you down tonight, you're not going to make it. But then the helicopter couldn't come in because of the weather. And so I made it out the next day. And it was, that was three years ago. But uh, it was my macro goal, and I needed to do it. I wasn't going to go through the rest of my life without achieving that goal. My, I didn't get to the top. And I wish I did, of course, but I would have died. Yeah, you definitely would have died for yeah. sure. If you were already at the, the yeah. hippo or hippo or whatever. Yeah. So I came back down, and... Um, the mailman would come. I go, oh my god! I got to walk all the way to my mailbox. I couldn't walk. I couldn't walk up my stairs to go to bed Jesus. at night. I was struggling for a while, and I didn't know if I was going to make it. Really? So then, what I had to do, the doctor said, you better not go to altitude for a while and never go up to ten thousand feet again. So I bought a bicycle, another bicycle. I raced bicycles, road bikes, and mountain bikes. But I had a bicycle made with a ninety-tooth chain ring. Um, that I had to have made because mm-hmm. that's a chain ring this big and I had the bike made by a Tour de France winner oh, wow. Andrew Hampston and now I'm trying to ride 60 miles an hour on a bicycle at sea level so it's my new goal my new macro goal I just had to shift gears so can you fly? you can't fly oh those are pressurized that's okay oh those are pressurized oh really? Yeah, I just climbing mountains and I've been to 14,000 feet five times since then I was at 13,000 feet last week skiing and I've gone over 10,000 feet a few times, but I'm still not recovered yet. It's not like you're not 100%. No. Wow. That's crazy that three years ago you're still you know, having the effects of that. But, you know, that's true, but I am so lucky because yeah. other people who are above me died with oh, the same thing. Really? They couldn't get down. Oh, my God. So I'm very fortunate. That Are you going to ever? I can't. I can't go above 10,000, really. And if I do, I could die. So, yeah, once you get these things like hape or haste, even even like things like frostbite or yeah. hypothermia or things like heat exhaustion or heat stroke, you're bound to get them again. So th- really? there's a slight chance you won't, but the odds are More than likely. you get up there, you get high enough, and you can't get down, yeah. you're going to die. It's going to happen again, and it's probably going to be worse because you already had That's it right. once. Wow. Yeah. That's terrifying. Yep. But you're just like... Well, no, I'm I'm just fortunate. I <laughs> yeah, made no, it. Yeah, no, yeah, that's know? that is. Yeah. Holy shit! Yeah, Everest is no joke, man. That's like. Now I heard that there's always like, are there still like bodies and stuff up there? You know what I mean? Like, do you ever just like yeah. you're walking by and it's so like, over two hundred bodies up on Everest frozen. What? And you go by one person, and he's wearing green boots, and his nickname is Green Boots, <gasps> and you take it right when you get to Green Boots, and you put a flag over him or a tarp. And that's no disrespect to green boots, but there's worse than the bodies that are up there is when a body blows off the ledge in a big storm and they go down to another ledge, the body shatter. Because it's frozen. And you'll see a skull over here and a leg and a torso. So it's intense. It's I think it's a very intense place. Oh, for it's sure. It's not the most intense place on the planet. K2's way worse. What's that? That's the second tallest mountain in the world. I've never t- I've been near K2. I'll never think about it. But that's in Pakistan. It's it's uh, they used to say one out of ten who summit Everest will die, but K two is one out of three. It's way worse than Everest. Everest is not 
technically a very hard mountain. Why is You're K2? rolling the dice. You Why know? is K2? It's much, so much bad. steeper. It's harder. It's harsher conditions. The, the route up to the summit, a lot less people have done it because of the conditions and the terrain. Wow. It's a lot harder climb. Everest, you don't have to be a, a real serious climber to climb Everest. You can be almost a hobbyist and you can Yeah, do it. like that's what I am. Yeah, yeah. But K2, you have to be Legit. into it 100%. Wow. And then your chances are pretty slim still. That's insane. One in three? Yeah, that's what it used that to are, be. Those are terrible odds. Yep. <laughs> yeah. That's terrible. You're so casual talking about it too. That's like, is that just because of years of just like, I don't know, like readiness or just kind of like calmness? It, I don't know. Not really, Corey. It's not a big deal. Um, <laughs> Cor- I mean, Everest is the tallest mountain in the world. I didn't summit, so I didn't go to the tallest point in the world. I tried, but um, Everest isn't a hard mountain compared yeah. to a lot of other mountains. Yeah, you know? like you were saying, K2, that sounds like terrifying. Yeah, yeah. There are other mountains harder than Everest. But it's it was just a goal, and it's ups- I would have loved to have climbed to the top and stand on top of the world, you know? Literally. But um, my body said no. My mind said yes. But my body said no. So I had a. I'm, I'm okay with that. I can swallow that and say, okay, what's the next goal? Well, your your base camp was. You said eighteen thousand yeah, feet. That yeah. is. And I went to Mount Rainier last year, which is only like fourteen thousand feet. Mm-hmm. I didn't climb it. I just went to the ten thousand mm-hmm. point and then looked at it, and it was like, oh my god. So I can <laughs> only imagine what eighteen thousand, even at a base camp, was like. Yeah, what it does the. Being up at altitude, even at 18 or 14 yeah. or anything, like got this 54 14ers in Colorado, mm-hmm. and I try to run all those. I've run 20 of them wow. where you just hike up fast and run down, and it takes a half a day or so. And I love doing the 14,000 footers. Actually, I like taking people up there on team building little events or people suffering from, you know, heroin overdoses or heroin addicts, opioid addicts. I, I just recently took a, a family friend up there who was suffering from uh, heroin overdoses wow. and things. And it changed his world because I told him, I said, you know, if we could sleep out on the trail, get up early in the morning, 3 or 4 in the morning, start hiking up a 14,000-footer, and once the sun starts coming up over the horizon, you'll see other peaks coming through the clouds, and you see the sun reflecting on the clouds, and we'll summit then you'll look down, there'll be nothing higher than we are, and you're going to see the world differently. And we did four 14ers in one weekend, and he was exhausted, but he sees the world differently now. Yeah, I'm sure. And it got him off drugs for quite a while. He had one relapse, but now he's off again. Wow. And that meant a lot to him. He went to school to be a mountaineer, a paramedic mountaineer, and he graduated all the schooling and everything, and he loves the mountains now. So I like I like taking people up there. Um, as a life-changing thing for either team building or people s- having some sort of problem, because you climb a mountain, it, it means a lot to people. Yeah, you know, if, if you get a sense that you don't really get in finishing some race somewhere or something. I don't think. Yeah, I think no. Climbing a mountain is pretty important for people. That's it's crazy to say that. Like, I know I didn't climb it or anything, but even being like there, looking at Ra- the yeah. Mount Rainier and just kind of putting it in perspective, that I'm like this big and it doesn't you know everything it doesn't things just certain things just don't really like matter that much so i can totally that changed his Mm -hmm. life then i guess obviously literally changed his life yeah that's insane 
Yep. I love doing that with people. I just recently took some Wall Street people up and down the Grand Canyon. Oh, wow. It was, um, I think, 28 miles or so. And, and that was life-changing. You know, for every, everybody enjoyed that a great deal. You know, going down the bottom of the Grand Canyon, crossing the river, and climbing back up when you're exhausted. Everybody just feels so good about themselves. Yeah, accomplished. And people who don't think they can do that, I would have to say they're all wrong because they all can. Just some might be faster than others, but it's a life-changing experience to um, to explore the world and experience the world in those ways. Those who don't do that, I think they're missing out a lot in life. Oh, for know? sure. Yeah, so... You don't have to be an athlete either. No, yeah. I would say most yeah. people that, I, that do that, like you said, are kind of like hobbyists almost and yeah. not like you professional don't have to be, athletes. You have to have work and you have to have a family and all that stuff too. So you don't have to be a full-time athlete to do these things, you know? Damn. Were you ever like into your like SEAL career? Were you ever like an instructor? Oh, yeah. I saw a picture of you on a, on a rock and you yeah. looked like you were instructing. Yeah, I, I was... Uh, I, I never was a BUDS instructor training... Uh, new people to be SEALs. Mm-hmm. I was always a SEAL instructor training SEALs to be better SEALs, actually. Yeah. And also, when I retired, then I started training civilians to be SEALs. What, what do you so mean? I've done that to many hundreds of people. Um, putting people through harsh, harsh, harsh training camps. I, I created the SEAL Adventure Challenge, the SEAL Training Academy. I worked with SEAL uh, uh, Navy cadets. So I've done a lot of programs helping civilians become SEALs. And that's not through the military. That's like your own. Some are through the military. The Sea Cadets was through the military. The Navy SEAL Adventure Challenge and the Sea, um, the SEAL Adventure Leadership Training Course and the SEAL Adventure Challenge. Those were all programs I created. So literally me and Rocco could do that if we wanted to. Oh, yeah. I'm positive you could. And if it got too hard, you pass out. <laughs> <Fuck>. <laughs> so let me tell you something. I So I've had three open heart surgeries. Um, and it's funny, I was going to, I tried to join the military when I was 18 and, um, I, I went in, my, my, my cousin is a major in the air force. My dad was in the Navy stationed in Norfolk. Um, and like I've had uncles and, and grandfathers in the military and stuff. So it was like, I was like, cool, I'll, I'll go do that. You know? Cause I also didn't, I was like, I don't know what the fuck I want to do. So I was like, let me go try this. And the air force is like, well, your pre-existing heart condition, we have to literally get, like, a letter from, like, this actual, like, Surgeon General to make sure, yeah. like, you're good to go. Yeah. And then I go in the Navy guy, and the guy's like, after, like, three or four months of us trying and trying, he's like, just, just, like, don't tell him it's hearts, you've had heart surgery, and just go in and, and you know, and just don't say anything. I'm like, I'm like, sir, <laughs> I'm not about to have a heart attack on an aircraft carrier, and then they'll be like, oh, you've had, you know, yeah. a pre-existing heart condition. So I was kind of like... I really wanted to join, but I guess it's, you know, everything happens for a reason, and I'm glad I, you know, I deferred. But you know, but. that says a lot about you that you wanted to join, yeah. you still tried, but there's a lot of ways to serve our country and serve people without the military. Yeah. There's a lot of different ways. Okay. You know, I hear that a lot, actually. Really? People say, I wish I joined. It's my biggest regret. I never joined. I wish I tried to join. I couldn't. But you could serve. When you serve Americans and serve people, and you, there's a lot of ways to serve I mean, what you do for work now, doing podcasts and interviews, if you can change people's lives through that, that's serving people. That's true. You know, you don't have to be in the military. That's true. It's not for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I have a problem with authority. So, because I was going to go be a homicide detective, so I tried the cop route, and I just yeah. getting yelled at. It's not my thing, man. Yep. And <laughs> and I hear that also, but um, 
you know, it's it, it doesn't last long. I know. People are yelling at and screaming at you. You get out of that basic training course, whatever you're yeah. in, and then before you know it, you're the guy in charge. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. You don't have to be in charge by yelling and screaming at people. You can, no. You don't have to be that way. Because I was gonna say, because I follow a lot of like, like for instance, like Jocko. You know, Jocko I is know Jocko. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. like. I, I, my and I feel like most people's envisions of like a seal is like six o'clock in the morning every day, you know, da, 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 you know. But like, that's not the case. No, I don't think. I mean, they're super, super, super intellectual people and smart, and they're not just like, you know, buff like machines. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think like, like, can you kind of tell me? Is that like like the array of people that are seals and yeah. what does it take and all that stuff? You know, what my I mean? my nickname as a seal instructor a seal training officer was sweet satan they said you seem like such a nice guy you talk quietly you don't yell and scream but you really push us really hard sweet satan <laughs> yeah so i took that as a compliment you know that's awesome because the marines go yelling and screaming and banging the chest seals don't have to do that all we have to do is say in the surf hit the surf and you keep him in there for four hours until one person passes out Bring him out, make him do thousands of push-ups, push him back in the surf. You don't have to yell and scream to do that. Oh, my God. You know, you don't. That's an actual training? Like that's oh, actual. yeah. Yeah. That's every day. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. Every that's day. A day in Buds. In Buds? Yeah, Buds. I heard, buds. though, Buds is, that's not Hell Week, right? Hell Week's week five of Buds. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's what I heard is like. It's week, one week of 26 weeks. Yeah. Holy shit. And Hell Week, okay, I have to be careful the way I say this. And I don't want to come across like it was easy because every day in Buds is hard. Sure. But I did so much uh, mental training and visualization before going to SEAL training. I wanted to be a SEAL four years before I went there. And I trained as hard as I could physically. And mentally, I did this visualization. And I pictured how cold that water was going to be and how those push-ups were going to hurt and the pull-ups and the the instructor's yelling and doing flutter kicks, thousands of flutter kicks, with your tailbone bleeding into the cement. I pictured all Jesus of that. Christ. And every day I pictured it harder than it really was. So me doing the visualization, my visualization was so real and realistic, it was harder than every day. So every day I got back to the barracks and go, oh, my God, this was a hard day, but not as hard as I thought. Yep. So I was ready for more. So you can make your mind really strong, and we call it combat mindset. So really, you can do anything in the world. You keep making your mind stronger and stronger and stronger each and every day. Your body will break down at some point. Sure. That'll break down. But your mind can get stronger each and every day. I did that for four years. and Before I knew it, my mind was way stronger than my body, and I was positive I can do anything asked of me. So you crushed it. No, I didn't crush it. It was hard. <laughs> everything was hard. But I did get to the point where I was able to say, I look at all the instructors, look at Everest, look at any mountain, look at the 500, 600-mile races. I learned to welcome the pain. I know this is going to be hard. I want it to be hard. Anything worth doing in life is hard. But if it's too hard, I'll simply pass out on you and I'll get my break. And then I'll keep going. And that's how I went through life. Wow. And it worked. And that, it works. Yeah. You know, Still it works. works for anybody. Yeah. Anybody. Yeah. yeah. That's insane. What's like a what's like a typical day is like, okay, you, you go through buds, you go through hell week, you do all that shit. You're a Navy SEAL. Here's the Trident. The Trident, yeah. Here's that. Um what is a typical day? Are you just like waiting around for some shit to pop off? Oh and, never. You know? No, you're never waiting. You never are not doing anything. When you get that trident, largest medal in the military, it's yep. the proudest day of your life. Yep. 
big giant gold pin and you your chest is bigger now and you're proud and you start off as a young seal and you're loud and you're boisterous and you just <laughs> want to kick the heck out of everybody but then you calm down after a while then you realize okay I'm the quiet professional I can do anything asked of me and the job's about the hardest in the world and I want it and I'm here because I want it and I'm surrounded by about 200 other guys in this team who think like I do wow. what's more powerful than being here and you start getting in my view anyways quieter soft spoken and you don't have to prove yourself you know and um but break glass in case of war you know the frogman's in the glass container there he's quiet the guy who can walk through an audience nobody suspects him but if you need him in case of war you break the glass and you got a warrior there that's very well trained and maybe one of the most lethal warriors on the planet and that that's what you try to be wow yeah so he, like earlier Rocky, we were talking and he was like they're basically like the ninjas of like the military right yeah you can't kind of advertise and pro you know walk around like hey i'm yeah him seal there. guys yeah, yeah that's that's probably not smart anyways no right after buds people might have that in them but it goes away in the professionals that never happens and then you know you can blend in anywhere mm. you have to blend in anywhere and be able to react to anything wow yeah and you don't want to broadcast it of course not yeah because that's yeah. kind of like it's counter it's a purpose yeah exactly yeah. And so like where are, where, where are you stationed are you stationed here in norfolk I was at SEAL Team 1 in Coronado, mm -hmm. SEAL Team 2 in Norfolk, SEAL Team 6 in, in Norfolk, and then um, all over the world. You deploy from those bases all over the world. Really? And I was in Central America for four years during the drug wars, too. Holy shit. Yeah. Probably, that's probably, that was probably crazy. One of the best things ever happened to me there, I was with a man. Um, the Army had just killed everybody on this patrol boat, and they killed everybody on it. They shot three law rockets at the patrol boat. What are law rockets? It's a, a rocket that basically can go through a tank or a building and kill everybody inside of it. Yeah. They're powerful. It's a shoulder-fired weapon, light anti-armored weapon. What's it called? Law, L-A-A-W. Yep. And um, so these Army guys, they shot three of them at the boat. Oh, my and God. And two of them were duds. They didn't go off. So we were called to come take, take this boat and bring it to shore. And this was right after the invasion in Panama. We just lost four SEALs. Um, I lost a lot of friends that night, you know, and uh, some of my friends were shot and paralyzed and shot and wounded. And it was just a bad week, you know. And then anyways, we got this ship, and the Army killed everybody on it. They wanted us to go pull the ship to shore. Mm -hmm. So our guys were up for a couple of days. We finally got to it. Everyone's tired, and we, the smell of death was terrible. Dead bodies everywhere. The driver of the ship got hit with a 50 cal round. Oh my God. And they're, what's, I don't mean to be too gross here, the, but his brains were on the ground, just wow. maggots everywhere. And, um, and so I told my guys, I said, the uniforms, the bloody uniforms, we'll just get rid of them. The intel, keep it in one pile. Don't touch anything that looks dangerous. And EOD, Explosive Ordnance Disposable, had come on and they cleared the boat of danger. Thing, uh, anything dangerous Explosives before we got on stuff, it. Yeah. yeah. So we pulled a boat over this place called Fort Sherman, and we had a dumpster 50 feet away. We set up our big tent, and we had the boat 50 feet from that. And now we're going on three days without sleep. And, and around 12 o'clock in the afternoon that day, the guy in charge was called the Master Chief. Mm -hmm. He said, and I was a corpsman, so he called me Doc. Hey, Doc, can you go down 
do a dive, check the hull, the shaft, and the screw to see if there's any damage. Said, sure, Master Chief. Got my dive gear on. Usually you go with the dive buddy, but I was going alone. I said, Master Chief, if you need me for anything, just bang on, bang on the deck three times with something, and I'll surface. So I started to go down the ladder. He goes, Doc, how's this? And he picked up what he thought was a pipe right next to him, and he banged it three times. I didn't see what he had in his hand, but I said, yeah, that's fine, Master Chief, and I went down. I was underwater 45 minutes. What he had in his hand that he didn't know was an unexploded law rocket round. Oh, shit. And it should have blown us all the smithereens. Those are so sensitive, a, f- a raindrop could set them off. If a cloud comes between the sun and the earth, that pressure difference can set these law rockets off. It didn't go off. The fins were off. It didn't look like a law rocket round to him. So it was the one that you guys, the Army, shot into the boat. Yep, yep. And it was just happened to be sitting right next to him. That was at noontime. That law rocket round was all over the ship in the meantime. I came up after 45 minutes. At 9 o'clock that night, I told my guys finally on th- three days, you guys, go go hit the racks, You know, yeah. get some sleep. We'll get up early in the morning. We'll finish the stuff. The invasion was at the tail end. We're still being fired at every now and then, some shooting every now and then. And then around 10 at night, there's this big explosion. And uh, what happened, three Army guys came up to the ship, and they asked the two workers on the ship, all those uniforms you guys are throwing away, can we have those? We're going to create a war museum. The guys on the ship said, yeah, they're in the dumpster. So two of the guys jumped into the dumpster. They're handing over all the uniforms that we threw in there, all bloodied uniforms. And then one of the guys jumped out, and this one guy is a captain. His first name's Mark. He looked down. He thought he saw a flashlight, but it was a law rocket round. The other one. And he reached down to it to pick it up, and it blew up. And he got blown up. He got blown up out of the dumpster. His eyes were here. His hands were missing. His leg was missing. And I was five seconds away from him. I grabbed my weapon, grabbed my my medical kit. And I was right there. And I just saw garbage everywhere. And I never saw a person living who looked more dead. Wow. And I did what a medic does, airway, breathing, circulation, disability exposed, patched up all the bleeding, got my IVs in where I could get them, called for a medevac, and um, and I saved his life. He lived? He lived. And then what happened is oh, on the helicopter, shit. he passed away. He died. And they brought him back, resuscitated him. Then he went to the hospital in Texas, passed away again. They resusc- he had all these shrapnel in his say, organs. Yeah. And then right before he left with the medevac pilot, I drew a, a stick figure. I put all the treatment I did for this guy, everything I could think of that I did, and I gave it to the pilot. The long story of it is I got a call from an office because I wrote that story in this book here yeah. about the captain who was blown up, and somebody in his office was reading this. He said, oh, my God, Mark, I think I'm reading about you. And Mark read it, and then they tracked me down. They found me, and Mark, my, Mark and I, we met each other. I saw this man walking with a limp, oh his mangled God. hands, his eye, his glass eye. And they saved one of his eyes, and we I saw him. I recognized him by his wounds. We hugged each other. We're like brothers now. And I just went to his retirement last week. He, re, he That was the end of his military career that Obviously, day. Obviously, yeah. But then he went into work in the intel community, and he just retired from the intel community. That? But those days oh there, God. those are the most meaningful days of your life. You can save someone's life like that, and all he's done for our country ever since. 
And his wife cried and hugged me. She goes, oh, my God, he's the best man in the world. Wow. He saved his life. If it wasn't for you, I wouldn't have met the best man in the world. And his daughters were crying, saying, my daddy, you saved you know, he didn't have literally it wouldn't, the time. Yeah, it wouldn't be there if. But those are the times, you know, something really bad can happen, but then something that great happens out of it. That's incredible. How long until that day that 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 um, law blew up, till you met him? How long was that? Over twenty years. Shut up. Yeah. That is wow. Yeah. And I've saved a, other lives also. Yeah, but that's like but that came back, and uh, you know, he's one of the most important people in my life right now. Wow. Yeah, and he's actually. Full circle. Actually, um, last Monday was retire- the date he was blown up. We're trying to meet every year on that date, but I was out of town, so I couldn't meet oh him. Oh, my God. Year. That's so yeah. cool. Yeah. Holy shit. That's just, like, mm-hmm. completely full circle. Like, yeah. And you were five seconds from him, and, like, did no one in else. in the tent right next to the dumpster. No one else got hit or, or injured from that? No, because he was really? the only one in the dumpster. And, and the that dumpster law rocket, it. he took the whole thing. He, yeah. And that dumpster probably really... And like, actually, I thought he got blown up out of the dumpster. Mm-hmm. He actually had a little bit of life left to him. He thought something else was going to blow up. Somehow he crawled out. Oh I, I just learned that at his, at his retirement ceremony. Wow. Did he talk about you and like all that stuff? Yeah. Really? They had that picture I drew, the stick man figure that I gave to the pilots. He had that in a glass case. He has purple Holy heart. Holy shit. He had this book here. And um, yeah, and he, he talked about it in the... His ceremony. That's incredible. That that was the end of his military career that day. But the beginning. Yeah, the beginning of his intel career. Wow. Intel is was it what was he at? Intelligence. He was yeah. an intelligence well, yeah, but... chief at a government organization. Okay. That's crazy. Yeah. That's fucking awesome. And it's in his <clears throat> book? Yep. Yep. Hell yeah. All right. So as I'm reading it, I'm gonna be like <laughs> You'll know. Yeah, yeah, I'll know like the backstory of it. Yeah. That's incredible. I noticed there's a lot of like blacked out stuff in here. Those are redactions. And um what you have to do when you write a book as a SEAL or a member of the government, uh, you have to submit it to the Publication Review Board. Mm-hmm. And they take forever to look <laughs> at it. And they just cross out all these things, so many of just arbitrary crossing out. I'm sure. I don't know why they crossed out. I didn't put anything in here. When they asked me to write this book, I said, no, I don't, I, I'm not going to write a book. on. They wanted me to write about the team that killed bin Laden. I said, everything you want to know. I was a training officer there when I left. But everything you want to know, I can't talk about. Yeah, it's like you can't even disclose it. No. The, well, the, the guy that actually pulled the trigger, what was his name? Rob O'Neill. He actually, how do you feel about that? Cause He's a it, friend of mine. It, didn't he kind of like expose pretty much and talk about everything? In one way, I'll say yes. And I was with him at the uh, museum, the 9-11 museum where the Twin Towers used to be. Mm-hmm. He invited me to be with him when he came out to the world to say it was him. Yeah. And um, President Obama, I'm not trying to be disrespectful here. President Obama told the world SEAL Team 6 killed bin Laden. Yeah. So President Obama put a target on every SEAL's head. Actually, yeah, you're right. You can Google where SEAL Team 6 is. President Obama came out on the news and said SEAL Team 6 killed bin Laden. Wow. Rob O'Neill didn't say anything President Obama didn't say. That's true. President Obama has made every family there a target. Because now they know that they like exist, who they are, who actually did it, and, and stuff that, like that. And that faith, those people don't have a short memory like we do. That's true. Our kids don't even know who bin Laden was. Yeah. For them, we killed their Islamic leader, mm-hmm. and that's not going to be forgotten. Wow. Everybody there has a target on the back. Jesus Christ. Rob O'Neill, I think, has a million-dollar hit yeah. on his head right now. I was going to say, he's got to have something. 
You know what Rob told me? He's told me this with a few drinks under him, a lot of drinks and no drinks. He said, when we got the mission to go get bin Laden, we weren't sure if it was really bin Laden. And we trained and we trained and we trained. And I'll, uh, I'll be up front. I trained a lot of guys to get bin Laden too. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't a hard mission. Rob said, and other people on the team who were on that raid said, it was like shooting paper targets. There was nothing to it. It was easy. Yeah. There was nothing like the training you used to set up for us. It used to make training really hard. This was way easier than training. Rob told me, he said, when they really thought it was bin Laden, they all wrote little letters to their families and the kids and the sons and daughters and gave it to a buddy of theirs and said, if I don't come back, please give this to my daughter or my wife or somebody. Mm -hmm. And it all said, if I don't come back from this mission, I did what I love doing. I'm doing it for our country. And I'm doing it for the 3,000 lives that were lost on 9-11. I'm doing what I love to do. I'm sorry, I'm gone. Mm -hmm. So they all wrote letters, <coughs> excuse me. And um, they got in a helicopter in Afghanistan, flew across the border into Pakistan, Pakistan yep. which is airspace we're not allowed in. They all thought they could be shot down in Pakistan. They come into a Badabad, two helicopters, one hits a wall, crashes, kind of crash lands. Mm -hmm. That's in every training scenario we ever had. There's always a downed helo. Nobody was hurt. They all rushed up. They put a breaching charge on a door, clacked it off. The door, there was a wall there. They knew something big was in this. It was a fake door. And But now there's their helicopters, stealth helicopters, coming through Pakistani airspace, one crash lands on the wall of Abbottabad. Now they come through. There's this explosion down the first deck, first floor. Then they come through. There's some small arms fire, mm -hmm. some shooting on the first floor. Everybody's alerted. Everybody in the town. Yeah, everyone And Abbottabad's got like the CIA headquarters, military training academies right there. Wow. I mean, it was in the middle of the city. They knew it was a one-way trip. They all knew it was a one-way trip. They come in, clear rooms left, clear rooms right, start going up the stairs. Now Rob's number two, behind the number one man. Bin Laden's son looks down the stairs. The number one man recognizes his face the little intel cards would get. And the number one man looked down and backed off. And he said, number one man said, Ahmed, Ahmed. He looked down again, and number one man got him. And they rushed up the stairs. All the women were on the right. Number one man jumped on the women. They thought for sure they were going to get blown up mm -hmm. because they are going to pull a suicide yep. vest. I mean, they had all this time to put them on. Rob turns left, and Bin Laden standing there with a wife holding his hands on his shoulders, shaking, an AK-47 here. Rob shot him twice and then shot him on the ground. And all the other SEALs came rushing up. They go, Rob, what happened up here? He goes, I think I got him. He wasn't recognizable, of course. They got him in a body bag, DNA testing, get all the soft thumb drives and the, yeah, the soft Intel drives shit. and Intel. Come out, rushed out, get back in the helos, all well within an hour. Start flying back into Afghanistan. They're thinking, okay, we're going to get shot out of the sky any second. I mean, all this commotion and everything. Yeah. And the pilot jokingly says to them all, because they've been in and out of Afghanistan all their lives, basically, for the first time in your life, you'd like to hear, welcome to Afghanistan. Yeah. <laughs> And they get out of the helo, they grab the body bag with bin Laden in it, they put it down, and President Obama's up there speaking on the big screen saying, U.S. just killed Osama bin Laden, number one terrorist in the world. 
And Rob's thinking, my God, I can't believe we just did that. Yeah. And it was the biggest day in our military history. Absolutely. Right? Holy shit. Yeah. So he has, what's his name, Rob? Rob O'Neill. Rob, yeah. So he has Bin Laden. He's basically holding him. He's next to him as Obama is saying what the SEALs did. Now, there was a lot of controversy with what they did with Osama Bin Laden's body because it was like, we know we got Saddam. We literally saw it. You know, we know, well, we don't know we got Hitler because that's another story. But, um, you know, there, there was no true confirmation. There was no pictures. There was no video evidence. There was nothing. So, like, how does the American people know that that actually – I know it happened, the raid and all that stuff and the operation, but, like, mm-hmm. they threw him off the side of an aircraft carrier to, to give him a proper burial, right? Yeah, what they did, they really wanted to be – and I don't mean to sound – funny here but they wanted to respect the islam faith sure and there was Islam protocol for how to deal with the body and so what they did they slid it off into the sea grave and um and i've never heard controversy over that really i've never heard anybody saying that didn't happen i i don't know anybody who witnessed it happening but i've never heard anybody ever saying that didn't happen and i don't see why it wouldn't happen yeah you know they wanted to um give him a burial so the Islamic people who are pro Bin Laden were going to come after us, anyways. We didn't need more against more, us. More controversy about yeah. it. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, more of it's really mainly a lot of conspiracy theorists that are like, "Oh, oh Bin yeah. Laden's probably hanging out with Elvis down in Cancun yeah. right now." You, you don't know hear I mean? those nuts talking about that stuff. Really? But, yeah. That's insane. So, yeah. as far as like, um, so you train the guys, or you help train the guys that made that operation? And and I don't want to make it sound like I trained the guys who went to kill Bin Laden. Of course, yeah. But I was a training officer at SEAL Team 2 and the advanced training officer at SEAL Team 6, and we are training to get Bin Laden at that time. So a lot of the guys I've trained at both teams, a lot of those guys were on that mission. But I didn't train them for that mission. I know, yeah. Yeah, it wasn't like So it's a little different. I know, yeah. Well, still, it's like, you know, the fact that you even know him and, you know, so and how you said he lives – you said that basically Obama kind of put like a, uh, um, you know, a bullseye pretty much on SEAL Team yeah. Six because he said, "Hey, these are the people All that SEALs, did it." I All believe. SEALs, yeah. And there's a there's definitely a hit out on Rob yeah. for killing Osama bin Laden. So, yeah. what's that about? So, President um, Obama, it's it's all politics. They all do it, left, right. They yep. all do it. But he pretty much, for the first time I know of ever in our American history came out and told the Islamic world, hey, we just killed your spiritual leader, and by the way, these guys over here at SEAL Team 6, they're the ones who did it. Yeah. I mean, how bad is that? Yeah. He he put a, a you know, he put a potential death warrant on all those people there. Yeah. Those guys are gone 300 days a year. Their wives and kids are living alone. It's pretty easy to figure out where they live. Mm-hmm. You know? I couldn't believe he did that. Yeah. But he did that. And um, so the SEALs are living with that. And uh, so the wives are doing the best they can. Their husbands are gone fighting now for basically their entire adult lives, being at war for their last 18 years. And uh, the wives are trying to raise the kids. And now they know to be worried because the whole world knows that community, those churches, those schools, those neighborhoods— where SEAL Team 6 live. 
Wow. It's not that hard to figure it out. No. And then, like, like, like off camera, we were talking about how Rob has a million-dollar hit on his head from whoever. Yeah. And I was saying, like, it's not – it's one thing to have, like, you know, like a Donnie Brasco-type situation where you got a, a million-dollar hit from the mob. Having a million-dollar hit on your head from a terrorist organization is no fucking – No. You know. And they're so well-funded now. Yeah. You know, with the mosques and all the money going to Islamic uh, – causes mm-hmm. and it doesn't always go to good causes a lot of it goes to the bad causes and um you know they're not going to forget that an american seal killed osama bin laden yeah and you know and i've met saudis um and i've i've worked with saudis actually and and their view of the osama bin laden family is oh what a great family that is such a great they've built so many schools for us and wow. roads and and mosques, and they're such a great family. They had one kid that went bad. That's how they view it. What? But you guys had a seal who killed him, you know? It's different how the world views us. You know, it's not like we view ourselves. No. I mean, he did kill 3,000 people. Yeah. I mean, he deserved to be killed, and Rob did the SEAL team did the right thing. We Intel communities and the military did the right thing. We had to go over, go after our threat, and we did, and we beat him. It took 10 years, but we got him. But, you know, our enemy views it differently. Of course. And we, we kill their spiritual leader. And there's nobody ever in the world who's hit us like Osama bin Laden. No. He was their champion. Not on our homeland, that's for sure. No. And, and we got him, and the next rule is for them to get us. Yeah, no. it was back and forth and back yeah. and forth. That's insane. So what's like the, as a Navy SEAL, what is, what is like the... What's your what's the EDC for a EDC everyday carry for oh. a for not for you as a retired Navy SEAL or whatever but like what's like the you know the go time like what's like the what's the the I guess the operator's choice of of weaponry of mm-hmm. whatever you know I guess it's like you know if you're demolitions if you're this if it, there's like I guess areas of what you would have but what's mm-hmm. like the what well, it really depends okay um, when you go into when you get um, assigned to a SEAL team, um, you have a whole selection of weapons to choose from. If you're a breacher, you usually have a shotgun with you as well. Oh, shit. But a shotgun, you can do room clearance, mm-hmm. you can shoot threats, and you can shoot door hinges and things like that with shotgun. Um, MP5s, 9 mils, and things are good just for sh- little rooms like this yeah, here. close combat. But if you're going out in the open, open area, you're going to need like an M4 or something that can shoot long range and can shoot still in a building. But you don't want to bring in something like that where you're going to shoot through one wall and maybe into the kid's bedroom next door. Sure. So every op's different, you know. And SEALs, the whole United States military as a whole, they're very, very, very concerned with collateral damage. You don't want to ever hurt civilians or non-threats. The weapons they carry are just to take down the threats. And um, so having an M4 here, if I was to shoot that, and there was a nursery school next door, they wouldn't do that. Yeah, you know? it would go right through. Yeah, exactly. So the, And if you're going to go running through a field or going through, running through the woods or something, you want something that can shoot long range. If you're going to breach a door, you might want to have a shotgun. And then you have a primary weapon and a secondary and a knife. So you have three weapons with you. And, and you're a weapon yourself. Your hands are yeah. a lethal <laughs> yeah. weapon itself, yeah. Holy shit. And, and I don't mean to say that like movie-like. No. But basically, anybody who's not a threat, the rule is you don't shoot them. If they come screaming at you and they're running at you with their arms up and everything, 
but they're not trying to take your life, you don't use your weapon. You just have to knock them out of the way with your hands. That's a hard call, I feel like, because if someone's coming at you, you don't know if they have a bomb vest on. You don't. You don't, especially women and kids now. Yeah, they use them. Yep. So, uh, But for Americans, unlike, I think, anybody else in the world, we're very, very, very concerned with not having any collateral damage. We're trained to shoot the threat, Mm -hmm. period. It could be the meanest, ugliest-looking guy in the world. He could look like the worst terrorist in the world. If he's not a threat, we're trained not to shoot. Wow. If he happens to have, you know, a 9 mil or a shotgun or a broken beer bottle, he's a threat. Yeah. Then you shoot. So jump ship a little bit. Like, no, no pun intended. Um, the – what's his name? The guy that um, Trump just pardoned. Um, Eddie Gallagher? Yes. Yeah. Like – so I know that we're not, not we, you guys are trained to, um, you know, no collateral damage or if it, it, not a lot, if any, you know what I mean? Stuff like that. But like all the stories I've heard from that guy is like, I, I heard like a lot of the SEAL community, it was kind of like when he got pardoned just because it was like the stuff that he did, you know, was not, not by the book, you know what I mean? Not like the standing operating procedure or just kind of even, humane from what i've read and heard but you know all that could not even be mm-hmm. factual but like do you have any kind of like yep i do i have an opinion on opinion, it i don't have yeah. any factual of course things i can share with you i wasn't there of course and i haven't talked to anybody who was there mm-hmm. um from just what i hear in the news on one side of me i want to protect him by saying there's nobody on our planet and nobody in the united states who could understand what Eddie Gallagher is going through. He's a war hero for one, doesn't give him a free pass. He's a war hero, and he's been at war for 18 years. Nobody in our history has been at war for 18 years. Nobody knows what that does to a psyche. It doesn't give him a pass, but the people who understand that is a SEAL community, Mm -hmm. nobody else. The SEAL community has dealt with war crimes before us, as the Marines have in the Army. People know how to deal with war crimes in the SEAL community. I think it was really wrong in a lot of ways for this ever to leave the SEAL community or for the public to know about it. Mm. If Eddie Gallagher was a loose canyon, his platoon was against him, he did, you know, allegedly do these crimes, and I don't know if he did or not, but I'm assuming he could have. If he did, I think it was a failure at the lower level, SEAL level, to let him deploy I think he needed help. You know, I think he needed help is what I think. Wow. Now, if he, if the stories are true and his SEAL team was shooting shots in the air so he couldn't get the next sniper shot and maybe a civilian, and if he did put that Randall knife in the guy's neck and killed him, if those stories are true, there was something wrong with him. Yeah. SEALs don't think like that, and he shouldn't have been allowed to deploy, my personal feelings. And I'll, I'll... As I say that, I'll also say SEAL leadership is strong and it's powerful and it works. I don't know how that would have failed Eddie Gallagher in getting him overseas. Mm. Um, I'm a little confused with the whole issue. I just went on MSNBC, who's not real friendly to the military, and they want to know my opinion. And I told them, I said, you know, President Trump intervened, and I went to the Secretary of Defense, Secretary of Navy, President's level, that was all wrong. I know President Trump tried to help, but it caused us a lot of problems in the SEAL community. 
that should have been held right at the seal level and no further. Hmm. We shouldn't be talking about it. We shouldn't even know about it. Right. You know, this, that's a seal problem. And you push the seals as hard as you have for as long as you have, those problems are going to arise. You know, Eddie Gallagher was an example of how problems come up. Wow. But they could have, I should, they should have, I could have handled that without it getting to the level where yeah. it goes to Secretary of Defense, Secretary of Navy, and then President of the United States. Yeah. And then I know the president tried helping. I don't think it helped because the next war crime, allegedly war crime, when we might not have a president who even cares about the military. Yeah. You know, we're not going to have the backing of a Secretary of Defense, Secretary of, you know, or the Navy or, or the president. So I just wish it didn't get to that level. Wow. Yeah, that, that makes I, – I guess I didn't look at it like that. I just I just see what, you know, the the news is putting in front of me, and I'm like – obviously I don't believe yeah, everything I see, no. but, like, it's just – it's interesting hearing it from also a, a, yeah. a former SEAL, and you kind of like – you know that it should have just stayed at the ground level and not escalated like that. No. He was a war hero. He's been all over. He's sacrificed greatly, but there's 10,000 war heroes out there. Yeah. You can't give him a pass to – do whatever they said Eddie Gallagher did. Yeah. Can't do that either. So it should have been handled at the SEAL level. Only the SEALs know what really happened. happened yeah. Yeah. That's what I was like. Because obviously no one will really know truly. No. Nope. And they happened. shouldn't. And they shouldn't, yeah. It's no. probably better. Yeah. Better that way. Damn, that's fucking crazy. Um, like uh, the, the military industrial complex, as far as like what does it take as far as to get us into, um, you know, going into war? Is there a lot of like um, people here in our country kind of pushing for it to get you know line their pockets and and it's obviously war is obviously profitable for many companies and i i mean there's like obviously a lot of talk about like the when we went to war when we went to afghanistan and this and that like the wmds the weapons of mass destruction that they never found stuff like that like a ton of money was made during obviously we're still at war with that kind of stuff right that's the Iraqi freedom or whatever it's called yeah. it's still going on yeah. right yeah. so th how big of a role do those kind of companies Lockheed Boeing all that stuff contracts mm -hmm. all that stuff play into you know starting a war going into war with, or a conflict with someone or any at all so I was a warrant officer CWO3 it's not way high up on the list of um, you know as high as you can go up to the admiral level but I can tell you, hand on a Bible, my hand on a Bible, I have never, ever, ever heard in my whole life that that had any influence at all on us ever going to war for any reason, period. President Bush, I always want to stand up for him. Um, when we went into Iraq, of course I know why we went to Afghanistan to get to shut down the training camps and all that. Mm -hmm. When we went into Iraq to get Saddam, I was thinking, oh my God, what are we doing? When Reagan was our president, we had two and a half, two and a half uh, warfare fighting capability, meaning we can fight two full wars and a half a war. Holy time. shit. That was with Reagan. Reagan, you know, in my view, the greatest president we ever had. But anyways, when Bush said, yeah, we can fight Afghanistan, now we're going to go into Iraq. I was thinking, what the heck? And all we had to say was Saddam is shooting people at his table. But I want to say this, too. Saddam Hussein was a brilliant man. Mm -hmm. He convinced the world he had weapons of mass destruction. He convinced all of our intel agencies in the U.S. he had weapons of mass destruction. He convinced all the world 
He had weapons of mass destruction. He also did that because it made him stronger and made his enemies afraid of him. So we were convinced he had weapons of mass destruction. We weren't the only ones. Everybody was convinced. Okay. Now, uh, I went up and lived with the Kurds for a couple of months. And my interpreter said, do you know why you don't see trees up here? I said, no, why? He said, Saddam had them all torn down, so when they go kill all the people, they have no place to hide. He said, do you know why you don't see men up here? He had them all killed. Do you know why all the kids have boils and cysts all over the necks and faces? He said, no, why? Because the gas Saddam used on his own people, it's in the DNA. It gets passed down generation to generation. There's no doubt he had gas and he was killing people. That's not a secret. We didn't find a big weapons of mass destruction smoking gun when we went in. But he convinced the whole world for his own protection that he had weapons of mass destruction. President Bush, we were just hit in our country. Our Pentagon was hit. The building's 9-11. We were hit 9-11. What's President Bush to think? Should we just let this guy go or yeah. should we go hit him? I, I was all for President Bush going in, even though I was worried that we couldn't. To tell you the truth, I don't know why we're both in both why we're in both countries still. still. That doesn't make sense to me. But I definitely understand why President Bush wasn't going to let that stone unturned until he went in, got rid of Saddam, found those weapons of mass destruction. And, by the way, there were lots of components all around the country we did find. And there was no secret we were going in. We advertised it. I'm sure those weapons went up to Syria, and they've used them on gassing their own people too. Wow. Yeah, that place. So I'm all for what President Bush did. Yeah, we don't have hardcore proof that he had weapons of mass destruction, although we know he gassed people, and there were components, and that's all we found. I don't know why we didn't leave after that point. I don't after know. he was killed? I really don't know. Yeah, after we secured the area, got some people on the ground, some intel people on the ground who could keep eyes on what's going on. Yeah, because it It's hard like to do, but I've never, show. ever, ever heard, and I know there's a big side of our country that says it's all about the big money and all that. Never in my... 42 years of working for the government military, have I ever heard that as part of a reason ever we've ever really? even thought about going to war? Damn. Never. That's I crazy. do hear it on far-left radio stations and things like that. That's the only time I've ever heard it. What about oil? Or oil. President Bush is going in there to get Saddam because his father failed and he wants to get the oil. We never took the oil. Trump wanted to. We never took any of that oil. And now, for the first time ever, we're oil independent. Mm -hmm. We produce more oil than anybody. Now we have leverage over Iran and Iraq. Wow, because we don't for need the to be there. For the first time ever. Yeah. That's not ever mentioned in the news nowadays. I didn't even know that until just now. For the first time ever. I was blown away when I started hearing about, like, I guess the ins and outs of this operation. I don't know if you know anything about it. The Captain Phillips thing. Do you know anything about that? I do. Okay, because what fascinated me was, I mean, the sniper, that the, the guy that pulled the trigger, or guys, I don't know how many. Three of them. At the same time, right? Yeah. On a raft, how many yards behind? Okay. The, yeah, you, I'll, you I'll be fucking happy to tell, tell you. <laughs> because that's one of my... This is fascinating. And I'm a writer. I write books. Yeah. And I would never put that in a book because people are thinking, there's no way the, that could happen. Listen, the, the fact that you're saying that validates me because I literally am like, there's no way this happened. There's no way. But go ahead. It's it's unbelievable what happened that day. I mean, SEALs were getting a lot of publicity. 
Navy SEALs jumped in, rescued two aid workers in Somalia, big, big hit. Got Bin Laden, big, big hit, you know. We're getting a lot of great successes. And then Captain Phillips is captured. Somali pirates come up to Captain Phillips to take over his boat, and everything went wrong. They finally got some Somali pirates in this big orange covered raft, a lifeboat, and Captain Phillips in there, and they held him at gunpoint. SEALs jumped in. They got up to the USS Bainbridge, I believe it was, and they climbed up the ship, and they said, you three snipers, just be at the deck of the ship to see what's going on. So they had the, the covered lifeboat here and the ship here. The lifeboat's going up and down. The ship's going up and down. They're trying to negotiate with the hostages to try to figure out some way. They've never trained for a mission like that. Yeah. Who in the world would think of training for that type of mission? They were thinking of taking the lifeboat, dropping off on shore, let the Army take care of it. Nothing was working. Secretly, they were pulling the lifeboat in a little closer, little by little, without the pirates knowing about it. Finally, they said, shit, we, we don't know what to do right now. What are we going to do? They finally got the word to the SEAL snipers. And I've seen this lifeboat. It's in the SEAL uh, Museum at Fort Pierce, Florida. Oh, shit. Okay. The windows are hard to look through. They're small, they're thick, and it's like opaque glass. It's hard to look through them. And I'm not a sniper, but I can't even imagine what three snipers trying to look through that glass with Somali pirates holding weapons up to hostages' heads. And then they're told, if you guys can get a shot, take it. Rob O'Neill and others I know were on the ship this day, and they heard one shot, which was actually three shots at the same time. <laughs> what? All going through the windows, all pirates dead, all hostages okay, Captain Phillips rescued. It's like fiction. We couldn't believe that happened. What? That is an unbelievable story. It doesn't sound real, but that's what happened that night. So they simultaneously fired exactly at the same time to where it sounded like one shot went off. Their ship's going up and down. The lifeboat's going up and down. That's what kills me. They couldn't see through the glass. How The, the hostages and, and, and the I mean, pirates like right are here. side by side. Yeah. That's, it, what kills me the most is, is the, the up and down. Yeah. Because, you know, that is like... It sounds like fiction. That's insane. And yeah. Rob was on that boat too? Rob was on in the chow hall, and he got a call on his phone. He said, we got him. Rob said, got who? Yeah. We got the call to take the shot. What shot? He had no idea that was even happening. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's insane. And this is the same guy that took out Osama Bin Laden. Yeah. Holy shit. What yeah. a career, Actually, man. Actually, uh, Rob <laughs> told me he was on, I think, over 60 missions where over 60 people were killed. Whoa. And that's the extent of what our SEALs are going through nowadays. And I don't mean to say just SEALs. Special Forces, Marines, Rangers, Delta Force, yeah. a lot of people. But I'm, I'll talk about SEALs only because I know about SEALs. Yeah. But um, that's what they're under. So Eddie Gallagher, he's not just some guy who went crazy in no, the no, war no. zone. There's a lot more that he's going through than just that. And what does that do to the human psyche if you've been at war for your whole adult life You've had many, many friends. You've seen their heads blown to pieces mm -hmm. and killed and wounded, and you've been wounded, and you come back for a couple of days home, and then you get recalled to go back to war. What does that do to you after 18 years, you know? So um, a lot of them are having issues, you know, drinking, and we've never dealt with that before in our history. Never. Never. No. So that's why I'll stick up for Eddie Gallagher. 
And I don't know if he did the crimes or not. That part doesn't matter to me. All I know is the SEALs should take care of those type of issues. They know how to deal with that better than anybody. Wow. You know? What's like the most, what's the craziest mission you've ever, I know the, 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 the man with, in the dumpster with the, with the law that went off, that is crazy. What's like, what is, what is your Bin Laden story? If you can even tell it. Yeah, I don't have anything like a Bin Laden story. <laughs> I know. But I was captured a couple times. What? Yep. And uh, one time I was captured. Who says um, that? I was captured a couple times. <laughs> By who? The enemy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Holy yeah. shit. Yeah, and uh, we went to the Middle East. This is way before the wars. And um, we're with our Egyptian commando counterparts. Mm-hmm. And we have to do what they do. They do what we do. You lose face. So they were killing these snakes and these frogs and these poisonous snakes on their boots and putting the snakes in the mouth and peeling the skin back, taking the venom sacks out and eating the snakes and eating the frogs. So we did the same thing. What the fuck? And then we all got food poisoning. So there were four of us on this mission, and we couldn't tell anybody what we are doing. And we left the Egyptian commandos with food poisoning, got in a flight, flew into another country, parachuted into the middle of the night with a rubber boat, four of us, Sick as could be, got in the rubber boat. They said, whatever you do, stay out of the water. It's infested with sharks because the Arabs kill all the camels. They put all the intestines in the water, and it's shark infested. Stay out of the water. So we jumped in that rubber boat as quickly as we could. We're all afraid of sharks, and we're sick as can be. It's middle of the night. We took the rubber boat up to the enemy-controlled beach. And we just observed the beach for a couple hours just to make sure there wasn't enemy activity. And myself and my buddy... We swam out of the boat, and we swam to the shore, and the shark-infested waters were worried about that. We had to find a place to hide for three days. To observe over to the right was an enemy airfield with planes coming and going, and to our left was an enemy shipyard with ships coming and going. And we had to do a reconnaissance so we could watch the flights and the ships Uh coming and going for three days. And there wasn't a place to hide, so we decided to dig a hole. We dug one hole to put the motorboat in, the motor, all the pa- everything we didn't need for the mission. We buried it with sand. And then next to us, we dug another hole for the four of us, all sick with food poisoning. We had long hair and beards, and we had our rucksacks and weapons. <coughs> and we had to sit in that hole and put a camouflage netting over our heads before daylight. And uh, we all had diarrhea, we're all vomiting, urinating, and we're sick as can be, and we're in this hole. You couldn't leave the hole once you're in it, because now it's daylight. And then high tide came up, and we filled up our hole up to water, up to our necks, and we're living in sewage for the next three days. And we're sick as could be. We had goggles on because of sandstorm. We're still blowing through the net, and our ears and noses were packed with sand. We were sick as could be. We had our weapons. We had our rucksacks. We are trying to do our job. Nobody complained. We're doing our work, and this guy comes out of nowhere, and he starts walking toward the hole, and all his clothing's blown in the wind, and he looks down, and his eyes got bigger and bigger and bigger, and he sees four guys with beards <laughs> and long hair with weapons under this camouflage netting, and he backed off and ran off. So we got caught. He went back to the village, and he got reinforcements, and we knew he was going to do that. So why didn't you get up and leave? Well, we did. As soon as he left, we got out of that hole, quickly undug the other hole with the boat, tried to inflate the boat, get the motor on it, um, got us all out. We're sick as can be. Now it's three days without eating or yeah. drinking. 
And you're vomiting. dehydrated because you're vomiting yeah. and oh, shitting everywhere. Before we finished, 14 guys with AK-47s came up over the little hill, pointed the weapons to our chest and our heads. Their fingers were on the trigger, and they were scared to death. They circled around us. We put our hands up, and one of them, who could speak broken English, said, down, down, down. We shoot you in the backs for trespassing. And we're standing there with our hands up, sick as can be. <coughs> we said, no, nah, we're going to go back in that boat. We're going home. Yeah. They said, no, we, we shoot you for trespassing. They sent somebody out to the village to get an interpreter. He came back at daylight the next day. They held us at gunpoint overnight. And the interpreter said, you guys trespassed. The penalty is we shoot you in the backs. We said, no, we're going back in our boat and we're going home. They didn't know where our home was. They didn't know where the United States was. They let us go. They shouldn't have. What? Because we're as sick as can be. We're out at sea. The next night, still without sleep, we're eating and vomiting and diarrhea and all that. We came around, caused them a bunch of problems, and we won, and they lost. So wait, so they had you, red-handed. They should have shot us. Let you go. You come back. Fuck shit up. That's insane. Yeah. Oh, my God. That was, my, I think, one of my favorite moments in the teams. You know why? <laughs> you know why I say that, though? Because I was with three guys, four of us all together. No one complained that it was too hard oh. or life was too hard or I should have been a pilot, or I should have been a cook, or a doctor, or something. Everybody loved doing what we were doing. Dude. I just loved being there. Me and Rocco, we, me and Rocco were, were hired to build a trench for a deck one time, and we were such little bitches. <laughs> we were like, we're not, the whole time, the whole time, we're not manual labor, we were like being such little pussies. And then, then they had, <laughs> the guy paid us, he paid us well. We yeah, we got it done. Then he had to redo it. Because we did such a shitty job, and we complained the whole time. So we are the opposite okay. of that story. So I'm glad you told me that. You know why? <laughs> you know why? Because it reinforces why I like doing these talks with people yeah. and why I like talking around the country. Because I think this message is helpful to people. Absolutely. Because life can get really, really bad, and if you don't lose sight of the mission or that macro goal, you can keep going and going and going. Life is so much harder than digging a trench. Right? Yeah, <laughs> Clearly, yeah. yeah. The, the fact that I just can't believe they had you at gunpoint, and you're literally like, "Yeah, they should have just, they should have shot us, and they, they didn't." They and I bet you they, well, they, I bet you they, they wish they did, you know, because goddamn, wow. And it, was it the same? So okay, so when they let you go, and you're like, "All right, we're leaving," they let you go. Do you go get food? Feel, oh, try to feel better. There's no place to for any of that. No, you just turn right back around. Oh and my go god, we're as sick as could be. We got in the rubber boat. Stayed out at sea for a night, came around the next night, and did our other work, which I don't talk about. Oh, my God. Yeah, there was no food or, yeah, or like, breaks yeah. or anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm taking my 15. Yeah, that's me on the raft. Yeah. No. <laughs> Holy no. shit, man. Wow. And how many operations do you have like that under your belt, do you Not think? Not that many. No? Because I have to say, my career was like the easiest career in the world. I came in in the 70s and got out in the 90s. We had an easy career. Nothing really happened. Yeah, little things. Panama, Granada, you know, things like El Salvador, if I was a note. But um, nothing big. Nothing you know? like the Middle East. Nothing or... like Iraq or Afghanistan. I did all that as a government contractor. Wow. Yeah, all these the wars we're in now, I was in a lot of war zones as a government contractor, not as a SEAL. I was in war zones as a SEAL, too. 
but the world is a more unsafer place now that I'm a government contractor. Interesting. Well, quick question, side note. What do you think about Tulsi Gabbard? I don't know anything about her. Really? No. All right. I kind of love her. Like, she... I like her too. She, I, I mean, I just, I'm not saying that because, like, whatever. I just think she, and we don't have to go, like, political and stuff like that and who's voting for Cruz because I'm not, I don't even know if I'm voting for her or not, but I just think she has such an interesting, it's almost like she should run as a Republican. Well, to tell you the truth, the little bit I've seen, she doesn't get a lot of airtime. That's why she I doesn't. don't know a lot about she her. She doesn't. Um, Joe Rogan. She's been on Joe Rogan okay. three times. Check I am a that. conservative. Mm-hmm. I'm Republican. I'm pro-U.S., and um, a lot of the Democrats, um, okay, so, you know, uh, Biden. Biden, I always liked Joe Biden. I always liked him a lot, actually. Um, what I don't like about Joe Biden is everything he's always stood for his whole life, all the times, all the years I've liked him, all of a sudden he said, Nah, forget about all that. I don't really believe in that anymore. What these far lefties on the far left believe in, AOC and them, I believe in them now. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't have a backbone. Yeah, he doesn't stick to what he believes. Like Bernie yeah. Sanders has been saying the same shit for Bernie like 50 Sanders, years. Bernie Sanders, to tell you the truth, I like Bernie Sanders a lot. Yeah. I don't agree with anything he says. And I, I don't wish us to be a socialist country, of yeah. course. I don't know a socialist country that works. But I like him because he's honest. And he believes in what he's saying. He sticks so to his guns. I can respect that. Yeah. Elizabeth Warren, she lies all the time. She's, She's Native American, man. Pocahontas. <laughs> right? I mean, how could anybody want to vote for somebody who just lies over and over and over? We had that with Hillary Clinton. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I know. she's another version of Hillary Clinton, so I can't, I despise her. Yeah. And who else is it? Buttigieg? I like him. I like him because he's intelligent. I don't agree with what he says, but I, I can respect his intelligence and his integrity. Now, he's a failed mayor, but maybe it's not his fault. He's I don't a know that. Serviceman, right? He's a serviceman, isn't he? Reservist. Reservist, yeah. Which is still service. Well, that's Tulsi's a, she's a, she's in the reserves. She was a colonel, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, yeah. You should, the uh, only reason why I bring her up, anyways, is because I, she, like the Democrats actually, the Democratic Party actually, like, doesn't even like her. Because she's got conservative views, she has she's very. It's almost like she's neutral. Because other than her Second Amendment um, issues, she's pretty much conservative. Uh, you know what I mean? It's yeah. it's very odd. You know what I I think anybody too far right is wrong. Yeah, and too far and left. too far left is wrong. That's how I feel. And you have to you have to appease American people. Mm-hmm. And um, and I'm not too far either way. I believe I'm pretty much central, but the world keeps going further left. You know what the guys told me in New Zealand when I was on Everest? Hmm. They said, just out of curiosity, what's your viewpoints on politics? And I told them, and I'm not hardcore right-wing radical, no. but I am right-wing. They said, that's interesting. We figured that, you know, being a military guy and all that. We believe your left-wing, your party, is too far right-wing radical. The world is quickly shifting left. Yeah. So where I grew up, I'm 62, where I grew up, I'm still there, and that was center. But now center for me when I was growing up is far, far right because everything else keeps moving further left. Who would ever think in a million years that we're talking about, should we give people who are breaking into our country illegally, 
Should we give them the rights of our military? That's a conversation going on in California right now. Yeah. Should we allow them voting rights? That's a conversation going on. Should we let people who are selling drugs off? Why don't we just make drugs legal? Yeah. I mean, that's going far, far left. All of that doesn't help our country in one single way. It helps people like getting high. Yeah. It doesn't help our country in any way. So I'm all, my father always taught me, God, country, family, in that order. I know it's not viewed that anyway anymore. But um, I do believe that you have to look out for your country. And um, most people who don't, they have no clue what it's like outside of this country. I was going to say, they have like, they no, think it's all It's fucking... still the greatest country in the world. I mean, you look at our election and you get sickened by it, but then you look at British election parliament and all that. Yeah, shit show. It's way worse than yeah. ours. Or in, in any Middle other East, country. Yeah, I mean, it's oh, the not Middle even East, they'll, the they'll just shoot you. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So we're still the best country in the world, and it's so politicized. And what I try to do is look at issues non-politically. What makes sense? What's right and wrong? Yeah. So where can people reach out to you, find you? Are you on social media? Um, obviously, you've written a shit ton of books. So kind of where can people find all that stuff? Well, you know, I'm a little behind with social media. I know I have a Twitter account. I've never looked at it. I know I have a Twitter Instagram. account. <laughs> but uh, basically, I have a website. It's www.usfrogman.com. Mm -hmm. And Frogman is a seal. And Frogman is spelled with two N's like my last name. So it's F-R-O-G-M-A-N-N.com. But if you Google my name, Don Man, Navy SEAL, that shows up anyways. And uh, so I, I, I usually talk to people every day. And basically fathers or uh, people who want their sons to be SEALs or someone's having a problem with their kids because they're on drugs nowadays. Yeah. Um, I like helping people out. Basically, if I could just do one thing for the rest of my life, it'll be just to help people when I can. That's wow. all I want to do. Good. And stay in shape and have adventures doing it, you know? Yeah, no, you're in like, you're in sick yeah. shape, dude. You fucking yeah. run circles around my ass. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, well, thanks for letting me do uh, this. Corey, man. it's a pleasure meeting you and Rocky. It's really nice meeting you both. You guys are great together. Yeah, no, this is like, this was fucking awesome. I was so fired up. When you when you were so responsive, uh, you were like, "Oh yeah, sure, I'll do well, it." I'm like, just good people, and yeah. I know you're doing it for the right reason. Awesome. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks. So, Thanks. That's it for the E Force with the podcast, and we'll see you next time. Bye. <laughs>